Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. In this week's podcast, I spoke with Heather Rose about her new novel, Bruni, a fascinating political satire. I do recommend you get out and check out that podcast, but to celebrate that chat, I'm going to look back with you today in this special bonus at a conversation I had with Heather Rose around her Stella Prize win for the Museum of Modern Love. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I always like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. It is their stories that are the original stories of this land, and I pay my respects to them. Now, uh, the Stella Prize is held every year annually. It celebrates the best in Australian women's writing. And in 2017, Heather Rose won for the Museum of Modern Love. The Museum of Modern Love is set in New York's Museum of Modern Art, and it's a sprawling love story that highlights one of the things that Heather Rose does so unbelievably, and that is right people, right relationships and their interactions. So as a special bonus to celebrate the release of Heather's new novel, I thought we'd look back at that conversation from 2017. So join me as we revisit Heather Rose's Museum of Modern Love. Good morning. You are tuned in to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Final Draft and I am Andrew Popel. And right now I'm joined on the line by Heather Rose. Heather is the author of White Heart, The Butterfly Man and The River Wife, as well as the Tuesday McGillicuddy series for children with fellow author Danielle Wood. But she's joining me today because we are celebrating her win in the 2017 Stella Prize. Last week, the Stella Prize was announced. Congratulations, Heather. Thank you so much, Andrew. And you won for the Museum of Modern Love, just an absolute, absolutely magnificent book. I've had just the, the most fun the last week reading it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Now... The Stella Prize, it's in its fifth year. Uh, we love the Stella Prize on Final Draft. I, it's, it's probably one of the most exciting times of the year. And, and more than just a single prize, uh, it's now expanded. It's just, you've got the Stella Count, the Stella Schools Program, Girls Ride Up, Stella Sparks. It's a ubiquitous feature on our literary calendar. What was it like for you? You know, this has now been a t- three-ish month process from the long list to the short list and then winning. It is a long process, but I, the Stella team are so impeccable at supporting us through all those phases of the prize. And to see the way they celebrate literature, they celebrate women's writing, they celebrate celebrate girls and creativity and the writing that's happening in schools, as you've mentioned, it really is a spectacular organisation to be associated with. And the prize itself, of course, it's already had four remarkable winners and to have the Museum of Modern Love acknowledged in that way was utterly extraordinary, Andrew, and I remain deeply, deeply thrilled, and I think I'll be happy for at least a year. <laughs> Probably, I, I, would say, I would say much, much longer. You've, you've, joined, <laughs> exactly. you've joined what I think will become a pantheon of Australian writing. We will be talking about the stellar winners for a long time. Now, now in your stellar acceptance speech, you discussed our societal difficulty with accepting and celebrating successful and powerful women. This theme emerges also in the Museum of Modern Love, uh, with people's questioning of Marina, Marina Abramovich's work. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. Despite the fact it was having this overwhelming success, we've got Arky's difficulty, his blindness even, to exactly how much his wife Lydia does. So whilst prizes like the Stella, they surely signal a move in the right direction, are we in any way on a path towards acknowledging women and celebrating, even rewarding them? properly? 
I think our domestic violence, which I would like to reframe as male violence largely, uh, its statistics are so horrifying. I think we're still quite a long way from celebrating women and acknowledge the extraordinary contribution, the powerful contribution women make in Australian culture from every level of life. And I think that until we start to see massive drops in, in male violence, domestic violence towards women, we haven't even begun. And we see... Um we see this across the board, and when people say violence, we, we almost sort of think of this physical act, but it, it goes to economic violence, to social violence, uh, online violence. We're seeing this huge backlash um, against uh, ABC presenter Yasmin, I'm going to get her surname incorrect, Yasmin, uh, for her Anzac Day comments, and a lot of that has been connected to her, her Muslim identity, but also her, her female identity. Other writers like Andrew P. Street didn't cop the same, same mm. violence. We, we really do have a problem with this, don't we? We do, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do think when we can celebrate women for the achievements that they uh, create, then it's a step in the right direction. Mm. And if, as a culture, we can understand, first of all, the degree of difficulty that women have to go through. Often a much more profound degree of difficulty because of the limitations that we face just from our purely social education, that until we really do start celebrating women and acknowledge their achievements in all the fields. You know, I I listened uh, yesterday to an article that said that women are only 2% in the trades and we don't expect a female plumber to turn up. We don't expect a female electrician. And yet I'm sure there are many women who would be so accomplished at doing that. We simply have a male bias still that exists in us. I have two magnificent sons. I don't want them to feel in any way that their position in society isn't as valid as a woman's. But at the same time, I want my daughter to feel as valid in society as I want my sons to feel. And that's probably the first step, isn't it, for, for men, particularly men, to understand that elevating women does not mean they have to, they, they necessarily have to, you know, lose anything. Um, a lot of writers sort of do talk about the way men have to approach this, but uh, with generosity, but really it's, it, it raises us all. It does. It really does. And I think Annabelle Crabbe's marvellous book, Men, Women Need a Wife and Men Need a Life, really lays out a blueprint for how that could be possible. And I do love the idea that men could have a much richer life with family and children if they felt they didn't have to be always the one 24-7 responsible for working in externally, beyond the house, uh, making income, because women can make income too. And if you can get that balance right in a family, I think it really enriches a marriage and it enriches the children to see both parents equally satisfied, equally respected in the endeavours that they are undertaking. Mm. Now, Heather, you're very generously celebrating other women writers right now, but we're going to celebrate you because the Museum of Modern Love, it won the Stella. And I want to talk about it. (laughs) Great. We haven't, we haven't even sort of laid it out, but the book takes as its centre performance artist Marina Abramovich's 2010 work, The Artist is Present. The show saw visitors to New York's Museum of Modern Art invited to sit opposite Abramovich in silence. It was an extraordinary success, and, and from that we have your wonderful book. Of the hundreds of thousands of potential lives that came and went from The Artist is Present in its 75 days, 
what drew you to the lives that you've depicted? And I'll clarify that these are these are fictional lives, but Jane, Aki, um, Hilaeus, Bratika, what drew you to these lives? Characters just arrived for me, quite honestly, Andrew. And Aki came, I, I, I could see him at the piano as we see him in the first scene. And I thought, oh, wow, he's a, he's a composer, he's a film composer. But I had no understanding of what that meant. So I did an enormous amount of research to create his character. His emotional arc was very difficult because, as we know, Aki has a hard time connecting with the people in his life. But what was lovely is when he met the character Jane, who was inspired by someone I met during the artist's prison, I must say. Uh, she was a teacher. She, wasn't, she didn't have the background that Jane does. I, I never got to know her that well. But she'd come to New York and she, was, she said to me that lovely thing of, gosh, I was going to go and see the Statue of Liberty. I was going to go see the Empire State and all I can do is come back to this art event. So I drew a character out of that initial conversation and... I loved exploring Jane and her deep emotional resonance with her students, with her husband, who, who of course, has passed away. And so to have these two people where she can see him and he can't see her was really quite a lot of fun. And knowing that they were not going to have a relationship, knowing that this was one of those confluences that our uh, overarching character in news talks about at the beginning of the novel... The rest of them just stepped in. One day, Helias just walked across the square and I realised that Aki knew her and that she was in his band. So they unfolded. They all unfolded. And Britica too. There were many, many young students from around the world who were coming to that show and who were busy on their laptops doing PhDs or masters in all sorts of fields of art and drama. So they, there was... a a beautiful presence of young people at the artist is present, so I wanted to have a younger character. And then the ghost of Danica, she came really early into the book. She was there almost from the start, and she had that very feisty uh, uh, personality. And I love having a ghost in the book. I think that's fun. <laughs> they each in their own way help us explore art and th this creative process that we see unfolding in front of us and woven through the narratives of the Museum of Modern Love you have this this voice of gentle encouragement inspiration you you called it yourself a muse just before or almost or maybe a genius loci mm. and your muse teases a role in inspiring and guiding the artist but there's also this this caution that art is daily work it doesn't just happen what mm. what has the work of art been to your life and, and how did that get realized in the Museum of Modern Love? Well, I think that every book requires something different of the writer. And with this particular book, it was a book about endurance, and the irony was that it took 11 years. But the, the degree of difficulty in this book was that I had to learn to be present with so much information every time I went to the page. And I think, in a way, this book, almost more than any other, taught me utter persistence. But it also taught me that... No matter how complex the material, there will always be a way through. And this book structurally was a huge challenge, Andrew. It, it, as you know, it's, it's almost like a theatre in the round. So you have these people moving in and out of the show and back and forth to their lives from the museum. So it's a, it was a very delicate balance. And I, I always think there's a musicality in every book, this particular novel was very hard to get the musicality right because I felt like I had to 
contrast the musical experience that Arky's having, very stuck in his process trying to create his next film score, but also the way that he unfolds into a new kind of music about his marriage to Lydia uh, to lead us into a place of uh, exploration, but also ultimately to a satisfying denouement. More than anything, I I found my pleasure in reading the Museum of Modern Love was indulging in that that contemplation of what makes art, and we see it. We see Arky doing it with his composition, uh, Britica with her PhD, where she she questions her own, uh, I guess, artistic self because she's in, involved so much of her life with Marina, um, and yeah, look, uh, just what art is and what what it is to make a life. The artist is present evoked mixed reactions uh, around its function and its nature as, as, in scare quotes, art. Some great comments. I don't know if these were things you overheard, but things like, is it a staring contest, people mm. were, were, were saying in the crowd. We can also see that kind of controversy. It's brewing again around um, Mona's Dark Mofo exhibition and the work 150 Action from Herman Nitsch. Is this a conversation, though, you know, the what is art? Is this art? Is it a conversation that ever needs settling? Or does art by its very nature require that we are continually just discussing it? I think it's so beautiful if we continually discuss it. Because creativity is the wellspring of our humanity. We, We are creative beings. And so the idea that we suppress that in any way, I think, is quite tragic. And it gets suppressed in this country through very, very limited resources for our festivals and events, very limited resources, if any, for individual artists. And yet that is the richness that brings us together as humans. And I always think the energy of a festival is so special that we come together to celebrate music or art or um, choral singing, whatever it is that's bringing us together and often it's seasonal, so there's a lovely aspect to that. It's acknowledging the seasons of our year. And people are enriched by it in ways they don't anticipate. So I think that while ever we keep con- discussing art, while ever we keep celebrating art, while ever we keep questioning what it is that brings out our creativity or our reactions to creativity, I think... The Dark Mofo situation is quite interesting and it has polarised a lot of people. However, isn't it great that they're all debating what is art? And that's much better than having to debate some of the more horrific things in the world at the moment. Not that they don't need debating. But I think there has to be a balance. We have to balance fear with joy in the world. It democratises it too somewhat. I think there is a, a tendency to privilege art and we put art in the hands of people we call artists and that makes us feel separate from it. And by engaging in that discussion, what is art, when we look at someone and say, is that a staring contest because they're sitting and it's a piece of performance art or everything from, <laughs> I could put some blue poles on a canvas and, and that would be art. You know, it makes us feel like we are a part of it, even if that part is just discussion. Yes, and you've named some beautiful examples because we, as spectators, spend so little time with art. I mean, mm. festivals, in fact, we indulge for days sometimes, which is beautiful. Uh, often, I think the average is we spend 17 seconds looking at a painting. And and yet the degree of difficulty of everything that ever makes itself into a gallery is extraordinary. I don't know any artist who simply 
whips something up and says that was easy. Usually it's years and years and years of endeavour and exploration and intellectual rigour that brings about an ultimate result that resonates with people. And it's partly in that, even though we may never know the story, it's in that that we are drawn to it. We're magnetised by things that seem to have taken a great deal of human experience to create. 11 years, in fact, for the creation of the Museum of Modern Love. I am speaking with Heather Rose. Heather has won the 2017 Stella Prize for the Museum of Modern Love. It is a hotly anticipated uh, event on, on the literary calendar, and I'm so pleased to be speaking with you, Heather. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It was a delight. That's it for this special bonus episode of the Great Conversations podcast. Today, we looked back at a conversation from 2017 with Heather Rose around her Stella Prize-winning novel, The Museum of Modern Love. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. And the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I am Andrew Popel. I um I thank you for always tuning in and checking out these bonus episodes, which I like to release every now and again, just to, you know, sort of fill in some of the gaps around our, our literary exploration. If you want to keep up with us, look for at Final Draft 2 SER, wherever you social media, wherever you podcast. And if you subscribe, there will be a new episode every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week. Till then, happy reading. <laughs>